Howdy, Biltmore Church. How we doing? Doing good? You look great. If you got your Bibles, uh, go to Matthew chapter 17 and Mark 9. We're going to be in both of these accounts. I hesitate to call it a story because it's not a story. It's an event. And uh, I think this is my fourth time here, so I don't have to do introductions anymore. I'm a regular. It's so good to be here, to be here with you. And uh, before I dive in, I do want to say this. Way to go taking care of your pastor, Pastor Bruce. Listen, man, you know that he's the best. He is the best. He's, the, he's a great communicator. He's a great leader. He's a great dad. He's a great husband. He's a great friend. So you should do whatever it takes to continue to take care of the best because you have it in your pastor, Pastor Bruce Frank. Amen. <clears throat> All right, we're going to dig into a, to an event that if you've been around Bible study, you, you're kind of familiar with this one, but we're going to dive in. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 is where we're going to pick it up. It starts out this way. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, if you know anything about the gospel of Matthew, you'll know that Matthew is writing to a primary Jew, primarily a Jewish audience, and he wants everybody to know that Jesus is the greater Moses. And so if you were reading this as a first century Jew, you would hear that Moses waited six days before he went up on a mountain to visit with the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19 and 20, and he took three named people to go up here with him. And so you see this connection here. Now, one of the things, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you'll see over and over and over is that Jesus consistently takes these three guys, Peter, James, and John, with him to do all the cool stuff. Like one time there was a girl, she was dead in a bedroom, and he went into the room, said, Peter, James, and John, come in here with me. He takes them up on the mountain of transfiguration. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he has everybody else wait over there and pray, but those three, he says, why don't you come a little further and come and pray with me? Now, the younger you are, the more you need to hear this, because I know right now you're thinking, well, that's not fair. Fairness is not a biblical value. God does what he wants with who he wants whenever he wants, because he's the sovereign king of the universe. Now, most of the commentators that I have read will say that the reason that he takes Peter, James, and John is because these three were his favorite. I just want you to know, I disagree. Now, you may say, well, whoa, 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 pastor, but, but John is the disciple that Jesus loved, and I'll give you that. But the only place he's called that is in the book of John, written by John. So he named himself that, you understand? So where I'm from, you don't get to give yourself your own nicknames. Here's what I think's happening. I think Jesus knows he's gonna go up on the mountain of transfiguration, spend time with the Lord, and, and he, with his father, and he's telling the disciples, hey, you boys kinda hang out here by the fire pit and you know, write worship songs or do whatever you're gonna do. And as he begins to go, he realizes there's just three that can't be trusted alone. Peter, James, and John, get in the truck, let's go. And you say, why do you say that? Because the chapter before this, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus calls Peter the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. So listen, when the Son of God calls you the devil, you're gonna have to go through some counseling later in your life to work that out, right? In a couple of chapters, Matthew chapter 20, James and John are gonna send their mom to go to Jesus to make a power play so that they could be like senior VP of Jesus Incorporated. Here's what I think. I think Jesus knows these three are the worst, which is really good news for a lot of us in regards to our discipleship, is it not? How many of you know that Jesus can take a bunch of nobodies, fill them with his spirit, and turn the world upside down, amen? So that's what's going on. These three go up on the mountain. And he, that's Jesus, <clears throat> was transfigured before them. 
Now, I don't even know exactly what this word transfigured means. It's a metaphysical reality where you can still see that Jesus is Jesus, and yet he puts his glory on display in just a supernatural way. The best I can come up with is this, that I'm a a hunter. I love to hunt a lot, a lot. And here in this part of North Carolina, you have a lot of what are called Eastern turkeys. And so if any of you have some land and would like to do some fellowship with me in the spring, then I'd be happy to come and do a prayer walk with you through the woods. So here's what happens. So here's what a wild turkey, I'm gonna show you a picture of a wild turkey. If some of you think it's in a bottle, it's not. This is it right here. This is a wild turkey. That's what they look like when they just walk around normal. And then in the springtime, you do a little er, 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 and they're transfigured into that, see? Same thing, see, regular, but, and, right? That's what it's regular, and then transfigured to display its glory, and then if everything goes right, there's a loud noise, boom, and it turns into this. There you go, okay, so. <clears throat> and so Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, there's a pastor friend I have in California named Chris Brown, he says, that the real miracle here is not that Jesus was transfigured. The real miracle is that the glory of God was cloud shrouded in humanity for 33 years. But in this moment, he puts his his paws on that and that his divinity is bursting forth through his humanity. And then Matthew says, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. When Luke records this same event, Luke says that he was as bright as lightning. Now Mark, in Mark chapter nine, Mark is always the least descriptive of all the gospel writers. Mark says it this way, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Which is kind of funny to me. I don't know if this is how this works, but I imagine that Matthew and Luke and Mark, when they get to heaven and they're talking about the gospels they wrote, and they say, you remember the transfiguration? Oh, totally remember, that was incredible. And Matthew's probably like, what did y'all get for that? And Matthew's like, listen, I, could, I was just trying to think of what's the most powerful thing in all the universe, so I described it like the sun was in his face and sun rays are just busting forth out of his face. What about you, Luke? And Luke was like, man, you ever been walking on a dark, dark night and your eyes are adjusted to the night and then out of nowhere there's a clap of thunder and like lightning, it makes you, makes you reel back a little bit. What about you, Mark? And Mark was like, uh, I put Clorox. <laughs> That's what he goes with. Now, I do think he's onto something because in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, his, his clothes are gonna be bright white, and when the angels at the empty tomb, when the women show up there, they're, they're, their clothes are radiant. But there's Peter, James, and John. Jesus is glowing like the sun. Verse three, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now listen, this is a really, really big deal. You see, this is is the personification of our very Bible is happening on the mountain of transfiguration. The, The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter three says this, no one by works of the law will declare themselves righteous before the Lord, but there is a righteousness apart from the law that will be manifested although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Moses was the writer of the law. Elijah was the chief of all the greater prophets. And what they are doing, the law and the prophets are bearing witness to Jesus, who is this manifestation of this alien righteousness that is to show up. It's a really, really big deal. 
And so when I read that Moses and Elijah have shown up on the scene, as good old Southern evangelicals, you just sit there and stare at me. But I'm used to it, I'm a professional, I do this every weekend, okay? Let me explain to you, if you were a first century Jewish kid, and you heard that the two heroes of the Old Testament showed up on the scene, you would lose your mind. I mean, I don't know exactly how it happened, but if you're standing there and then out of the ground just comes, you know, this figure with like a beard and a staff and some tablets, and you'd be like, that's Moses. And then next to him, out of the ground, comes a figure with like a staff and a beard and like a name tag that says Elijah, I don't know, fire from heaven. You would think, oh my, this is, this is the two heroes of the old covenant bearing witness to the Son of God. And then I love this so much. Look what happens next in your Bible, verse four. And Peter said, I don't know if you've studied the apostle Peter that much, but he's always gonna talk first and he's always gonna talk most, okay? I mean, think about this, think about this. If you're the apostle Peter, and there's the transfigured, glorified second person of the Trinity talking to Moses and Elijah, and Peter assesses the situation and says, you know what, I should probably say a few words about right now. <laughs> and Peter says to Jesus, he sticks his dumb head in there and goes, it is good that we are here. <laughs> hey, listen, man. If you ever find yourself on a mountain with the glorified Christ and Moses who's been gone for 1,300 years and Elijah for 850, maybe that's not the time to open your mouth. Maybe it's not about you. Hey, you ever say something dumb? And as the dumb is leaving your face, you're thinking, oh no. Because <laughs> dumb words are like toothpaste, right? Once they're out, you can't put them back in the tube. And I don't know what you do, ladies, but men, I know what we do. We go, oh, I know how to fix it. More words. <laughs> that never works, does it? He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. And then they look at him, they gotta be like, uh, excuse me, and he goes, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, I think Peter is just talking and talking and talking and talking. In fact, Mark records it this way. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. Listen, here's some biblical advice, even if you don't know who Jesus is. When you don't know what to say, just don't. But he keeps talking. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You see, a part of what he's doing is he's, if you give him the benefit of the doubt, Peter has fallen in love with the moment, and there's nothing wrong with that. You ever have those high, holy moments with the Lord? I mean, there are probably some times when you just show up to church and you think it's just gonna be a regular Sunday, but I don't know, the music's a little extra, the sermon's a little extra, you'll just be worshiping two hands up, and you feel like if you just open your eyes real fast, you could see the very face of God. Or maybe that outdoor baptism that you do, I can imagine for some of you, because the person that you love and have been praying for like crazy is going public with their faith, and you think, man, I live for these moments, and those moments matter, but here's the problem. Jesus never stays up on the mountaintop. You see, I don't think we were created to live up on the mountaintop because most of the ministry happens down in the valley. And there's a bunch of believers that just wanna sit and soak up on the mountaintop. And it matters, you show up, we gather together as a family of believers to be, to be reinvigorated with the Spirit of God so that we can continue our life of worship outside of here where the rubber meets the road. Verse five. And Peter was still speaking. Isn't this hilarious? 
He's like, no, seriously, I can make tents for everybody. I'll make a red one. We'll split it in the middle for you, Mo, like the Red Sea. You get it? Get it? Everybody gets a tent. Elijah, what's your favorite color? I'll make you a tent. He's like the Oprah with tents, and you get a tent, and you get a tent, and you get a tent. And he's still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is God the Father in Hebrew saying, shut your mouth. You know, it's hard to hear from the Lord when you're doing all the talking. You ever notice that? You ever go to the Lord in prayer because you need a word, but you do all the talking? God says, hey, why don't you just shut your mouth for a minute? Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. You know why they're terrified? They think they're going to die because in Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses, consecrate yourself, come up on Mount Sinai, bring three named people with you, and then a tempest, a God in a cloud, shows up on the scene, and God says, anybody that comes up on this mountain that's got any sin, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's you, your dog, your parakeet, I'm going to kill you. And so the disciples, who knew their Old Testament pretty good, they're looking around going, uh-oh, there's our leader, we're on top of a mountain. We waited six days to get here. There's one, two, three named people, and now here comes God in the form of a cloud. We're dead meat. But instead of that, here's what happens. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. You know what the most commanded thing in all the scriptures is? Fear not, be anxious for nothing, have no fear. In the King James Version of the Bible, 366 times we are commanded to fear not. Why? Because I don't know about you, but every single day of my life, including the leap year, I need to hear those words, fear not. You see, God never ever changes, but when Jesus came, we have a brand new covenant that gives us access to the King of Kings like no one else has access. You see, when Jesus pushed up on his nail-pierced feet and says, it is finished, an earthquake cracks right through the middle of Jerusalem, through the Holy of Holies, and tears this curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God from the top to the bottom, not bottom to top like we earn our way to him, but top to bottom as an invitation that we get to walk into the very presence of the almighty King of Kings through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You know who gets to walk into the king's chambers in the middle of the night and ask him for a cup of water? only as kids. You see, my children have access to me that nobody else does. Like at our church, at the end of the services, you know, I wait out front and take pictures of people and pray with people and sign books and people get in a line. I got a 14-year-old little girl. She doesn't have to wait in line. In fact, when I get home later today, I will go and sit down on the couch and she will come. She's got seven or eight choices of where she could sit in our living room. She always picks the half a seat that's next to me. And I love it very much that she'll still show me this affection. She will sit down half on me, put one leg over mine, and put her fingers on my bald head and go, what's up, big guy? <laughs> if you do that, I'll tase you. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> 189 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to the sovereign judge of the universe as father, as father. A.W. Tozer says the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. Jesus wants you to think about God as a loving father that through his blood you have access to. So Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. By the way, that's how you overcome fear because perfect love drives out fear. You fix your eyes on Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In other words, he said, hey, keep this to yourself until I pull off Easter, nobody's gonna believe it anyway. 
Now, if you flip over to Mark chapter nine, it's the same account, just some different details. All the way down the mountain, Jesus explains to them the gospel, that he's gonna be handed over by the chief priest, he's gonna be crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day, he's going to be resurrected from the grave. And when they get down to the bottom of the mountain, they're gonna run into this ministry moment, Mark chapter nine, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And he already knows the answer, but parents, this is like when your kids are in the room and they're fighting and you go in there and you go, what are you fighting about? And they're like, nothing, they're liars, that's what they're doing. The disciples know they're in trouble, so they don't respond. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid, and so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. You see, here's what I need you to do here. If, if, you, if you've been around Bible study for a while, you already know how this thing's gonna end. It's gonna end good. But in this moment, this dad finds himself in a desperate situation. And you can't think about this like Bible story. When I say Bible story, I'm afraid your mind will go like Veggie Tales or Flannel Graph or whatever your age group is. This is not it, man. This is a story. Like, this, is, this dad is a dad. He's got a first name. He's got a job. He's got a permanent address. And he finds himself in an utterly desperate situation. And the sad thing is, is he shows up to the one place he thinks he can help. He shows up to the disciples of Jesus, and instead of them helping him, they get into a denominational argument because somebody's not doing something right, which is pretty much a picture of the modern day church. Everybody spends all their time, effort, and energy online throwing rocks at one another because they don't like the way the other church is doing it. Meanwhile, we've got a dying and desperate generation right before us that needs help. And this dad is in a desperate situation. Matthew says that the dad goes before Jesus and falls down on his face and cries out, I brought my son to you. You see, you know this, man. If you're a parent, you know there's no pain like kid pain, amen? I mean, there is no pain like kid pain. And what would you do for your kid? I know what you would do. You would do whatever it takes. You'd sell the house, you'd sell the car, you'd go wherever, you would do whatever it takes. And this man has tried everything and now he hears that this man, Jesus, has shown up in town and what if it's true? What if the rumors are true that he actually can walk on water and that the wind and the waves obey and that he brought a dead girl back from from the dead and that he makes the, the blind see and the lame walk? What if it's true, just maybe, maybe, maybe he can do something for my kid? And the reason that there's no pain like kid pain is because there's no love like kid love. I mean, listen, man, I love my wife so much. I, I usually bring her here with me on this trip because we love Asheville so much. We've been married 23 years. I love her more now than ever. If I talk about her too much, I'll get a little bit wobbly chin. Like, oh, I mean, I do. I just love that girl. But there's a different gear for your babies, isn't there? You know what I'm talking about? Like, the happiest day of my life. It was almost 18 years, it was over 18 years ago when we were pregnant, mostly Gretchen. And I went to every one of those appointments, man, every one of them. 
and we go to the one where you find the sex of the baby and we went in there and they put that little goopy stuff on her belly and start, oh, you know what I mean? And you're looking at the little screen. She's like, you see it? I'm like, baby, I got bad news. We're birthing E.T. This looks awful. I don't know what's happening. Ha! And then that doctor said, congratulations, Mr. Martin. It's a boy. And I, I scooped her up. I picked her up like that. Gretchen said, put her down. I put her down. Called my daddy. said, daddy, I made a boy. That's what I said. Daddy, I made a boy. You know what he said? I knew you had it in you, son. All right? <clears throat> I named him me. Joseph Perry Martin the fourth. I'm the third. My daddy's junior. I was almost junior, junior. That happens sometimes in the Carolinas. And so, and then that day he was born, man, I'm going to tell you, first of all, it's not awesome. Uh, it just for all you young folks that don't know about this, anybody says it's beautiful, they're drunk. They, it ain't beautiful. It's terrible. But eventually, when all that situation was finally over, <clears throat> and they wrap him up in that little burrito of love, and they bring him to you, and I looked at him. My, my man had a skullet. You know what a skullet is? It's like bald on top, mullet in the back. That's what it is. He looked like Hulk Hogan. And I remember saying, you can take my boy out of Dylan, but look at him. That's mine, right? Parents, you know this is true. In that moment, all the love that you have to give, you pour into that little human being right there. And you're like, I can't believe this. Four years later, we're pregnant again. And we're back in that same little room with that lady. She's got the goopy stuff on there. Whoa. And she says, Mr. Martin, it's a girl. And I go, okay. And Gretchen said, you going to be all right? I said, I'm going to be all right. Now listen, there's nothing better than being a girl dad. Nothing better. But in our world right now, you got to pay a little more attention. You understand? A little more protection. Now, when they wrapped up little Reagan Capri with her little sweetness, they wrapped her up in that little pink burrito of love, and they handed it to me, I began to think, uh-oh, you can't ask somebody this because you sound like a terrible parent. But when we had the first kid, I did not portion out my love right. I took 100% of it that I have, and I put it all in the first one, and I began to wonder, uh oh, when we get another one, am I gonna be able to love it like I love the first one because I already gave all my love away? Now, every parent knows this. I don't care if you have two or 17, that you've always got all the love to give, even if you felt like you gave it all away because love is an inexhaustible resource because God is love. And I held little Reagan Capri and I thought two things. I would die for you and I would make somebody die for you. I mean, I can run our prison ministry from the inside if need be. You understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> and because there's no love like kid love, there's no pain like kid pain. There's no pain like kid pain. That every parent worth their salt would do whatever it takes for their kid. And this is what this dad is doing, man. He's doing whatever it takes. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this dad has hope that maybe Jesus can do something about it. So he comes and he, and he falls on his face before Jesus and he asks if Jesus can help. And look at Jesus' response, verse 19, and he answered them, oh, faithless generation, he's talking to his disciples. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me, he's talking about the boy, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell down on the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. One of the things that you will notice in the scriptures, in the gospels particularly, is that the demonic are always the first to recognize Jesus, and the religious are the last. That's a warning, church. 
If you show up here to Biltmore Church, I don't know what your last church experience was. If you show up here and you feel like it's a little bit grimy sometimes, a little bit edgy, well, you know why? Because this place is a hospital for the sick. This is not a country club for people that just claim to be a Christian. You understand? You see, the religious people didn't recognize Jesus because he did not fit in their religious construct. But the demons saw him for who he really is. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad said, from childhood. Not from birth, from childhood. Imagine this. This isn't how it happens, but you know what I mean. Mom and daddy bring the baby home from the hospital, and for years, months, for some point, everything looked fine, everything was okay, and then at some point, something was a little off. And there's always that one optimistic parent that's like, it's fine, it's fine, it's nothing. And then there's that other parent that's like, no, 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 I, th I think something's wrong with him. Verse 22, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Listen, man, these people don't live in Asheville. They live by the Sea of Galilee. And they don't have microwaves. This means that all day, every day, there are open fires everywhere they go, and they live by a lake, which means every step of this boy's life, the enemy is trying to take him out. You know why? Because we have an enemy who's a thief, and the only thing he wants to do is steal and kill and destroy. And then look at the dad's request. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice that he does not, the dad does not try to negotiate. He just says, can you help us? Notice, not me and not him, but us. Because if you've got a sick kid, it affects the whole family. Help us. There's no negotiation here. There's no, it, it, can, I, can I support your ministry? And if I do that, then you'll owe me. No, 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 no. there's none of this. He's just asking for Jesus to do him a favor. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then look at the dad's response. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. His immediate response was loud. This wasn't an unspoken prayer request in Bible study. No, 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 no. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe the most honest prayer in all of the scripture right there. And I just wanna ask you, you ever been there? You ever been there? You ever been at the place where you believe and you wanna believe and you're trying to believe, but as you look around at the circumstances of your life, here's this man and he sees Jesus and he wants to believe, he really does, and he kinda believes, but when he looks around and he sees his son, he sees a big old heaping pile of circumstances that seem way bigger than the amount of belief he has right now. You ever been there? Like a prodigal kid? In the moment, man, if you got a kid that's, run away from you and run away from the Lord, you begin to immediately think, what did I do wrong? And maybe you didn't do anything wrong, man. And you raised them in church and you took them to every vacation Bible school and you trained them up in the way they should go and now they're old and they've shot you the burden, shot the Lord the burden, shot the church the burden. They're off just squandering it away. And you think, God, I believe, but you gotta help my unbelief here. Maybe, maybe it's cancer and you know God can heal but he's not healing you. Or maybe it's a divorce and you stood in an altar and you made a vow but he didn't mean it apparently because he's gone. Or maybe it's an addiction 
Maybe it's an addiction and you run into play, man. You're going to the meetings and you should and every single day you've promised, I'm never gonna do this again and yet, it's okay while you're in church right now but by Tuesday, you feel like something's baiting you down a road that you don't wanna go and you're like, Lord, I just, please help me. I believe but you gotta help my unbelief. You ever been there? Man, I've been there more times than I can count. Several years ago, my, my brother and sister-in-law were pregnant with their first child. At 36 weeks, my sister-in-law, Maggie, didn't feel the baby moving, goes to the hospital, the, next, the doctor the next day, and her 36-week-old had passed away. And then to add insult to injury, you have to go in and be induced to deliver your dead baby. And they take pictures, and it, his name's Nash, and he just looks, he's a little chubby face with little dark hair. And I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? I mean, you give life. It's, our, it's your breath in our lungs. Why don't you breathe the breath of life in the little Nash? I mean, I don't understand, God. Maggie and Justin just wanna be good parents. They just wanna raise little Nash into church. And help me understand this. Why is it that the least qualified humans on the planet seem to be the most fertile and the people that would be the best parents at church have a hard time having a kid? Lord, I believe it. You gotta help me with this one. 15 years ago, there was a teenage girl that had just gotten saved at 1122 and I heard she was in the hospital and so I go to visit her and I go walking in and she's laying in the bed with all these tubes hooked up to her. She'd had a, something happen. She's in a coma. Her mama's laying in the bed with her. She's 15 years old. And I walk in there and I am just overcome. I knew the parents had asked me to do the pastor thing and say wise things and I just cried and cried and cried because I had a little one-year-old blonde at my house and I couldn't imagine. And the parents are like, why is this happening? And I'm like, I don't know, I have no idea. Because this is not the way I would write the script. In fact, I had it all figured out. I'm like, all right, Lord, I got this. All right, I get my anointing oil, we'll go James five. I'll roll up in there, I'll anoint Mackenzie with oil. She'll step up out of this bed and I will take her by the hand into the waiting room where there's 250 high school students from around Jacksonville and they'll all give glory to you. Let's do it, God, I know you can. You healed a lady one time by accident. You didn't even mean to. You're just walking through Capernaum like, all right, who touched me? So why don't, he, why don't you heal her on purpose? She died four days later. Now again, man, I can see on this side how God has been at work in that, but it's not the script I'd write. Two years ago, I was on sabbatical, like your pastor is, and I was hunting with my best friend. We were chasing Red Stag in Scotland. It was an incredible trip, man. His name's Brad Bowen. I, I led him to Christ, I baptized him. He was a general contractor. He built every one of our campuses. We have 14 now. He built them all. He spent his whole life creating seats and spaces where people could meet Jesus. That's what he was doing with his life. He's in his mid-50s and we hike up the Highlands to chase after Red Stag. And Brad has a massive heart attack, never makes it back. My best friend. And I'm like, Lord, I got a long list of people I would take out, not the dude that's just trying to build your church for you. I believe, but you gotta help me overcome my unbelief. You ever been there? Now the good news is the response of Jesus. You know what Jesus does not say to the man? He doesn't say, depart from me, you of little faith. He doesn't say, why don't you go and work on your faith, and when you get your faith meter up to miracle level, maybe then come back and see me. That's not what he does. That Jesus meets this man right in the middle of his pain, and the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It does not say how much faith. Why? Because a tiny little itty bit of faith in an almighty, 
all-powerful God is infinitely bigger than putting all your faith in the temporary circumstances of this world. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This is a foreshadowing of Easter. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Church, let me ask you this. Is prayer for you a first response or a last resort? You see, Jesus was saying, listen, man, I know I was up here on the mountain, but I was one prayer away, and instead of bringing this to me, you got in some kind of denominational argument here. Let me ask you, man, if the Holy Spirit left your house, how long would it take for you to know? Like, are you plugged into the very power of God that is available to you, or are you just trying to run your house on, like, good conservative moral values? Have you been operating in your own power and not his? You see, I think the point... And the reason that these two events are sandwiched together is that God does not reveal himself to us on the mountain so that we can just sit and soak on the mountaintop, but so that we can be sent to serve on mission where it's the messiest. So let me ask you, church, what about you? Any, any of you find yourself in the same position that the dad is today? I mean, you got a prodigal son or a daughter? prodigal grandchildren that are running from the Lord and running from your family and they're not just hurting themselves, they're hurting your whole family. Maybe it's a bankruptcy thing and honestly, it's not even your fault, man. You bring your first and best and things just change in your world and you're gripped with fear. Maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe you're ruled by fear. Here's a difficult one for Christians. Maybe you struggle with anxiety and depression and you look around at all the circumstances of your life and your circumstances are pretty okay, man. You got a decent marriage and healthy kids and place to live and every single morning you wake up and you try to turn on happy and you just can't turn it on. And you read verses in Philippians about rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice but you just have a hard time turning it on. Maybe it's bitterness or forgiveness or maybe it's an addiction you know what Jesus wants for you? He wants for any of that demonic oppression in your life to be gone, and he wants for you life and life abundantly that's found in him. I don't know, some of you are like, Pastor, you, you actually believe in the, in the demonic? Uh-huh. You don't? Do you not have a television right now and watch what's happening on the news every single day? Have you ever met somebody with an addiction? I mean, how would you describe this? Somebody with, with an addiction, they will tell you, I don't wanna do these things, and yet there's, it's like there's something else that's not me that baits me down a road, and I know if I continue down that road, it's gonna kill me. What do you think that is? And so what do you do? What do you do? Here's what I would tell you to do. You do exactly what Jesus said. This kind can only be cast out by prayer. And I know this is a praying church. So if you find yourself in this kind of position like the dad that says, Jesus, I believe, but I need you to help me with my unbelief. 
And maybe it's a thing that you're going through that I'm gonna invite you in just a minute. We're gonna stand, we're gonna sing a song. And basically when the church gathers together and sings, it's just all of us praying the same thing at the same time. That's what we're doing. But I know some of you are gonna need to come forward. And listen, man, you can pray in the back just as much as you can pray down here for sure. The presence of God is, is everywhere at all times. However, there's something that happens when you come and position yourself in humility before the King of Kings that can hear your prayer and you cry out to him, God, I believe, but I need you to help me overcome my unbelief. And for some of you, it's not what you're going through, but it's like this dad is coming on behalf of his son. And some of you need to come on behalf of your spouse or on behalf of your parents or on behalf of a friend or a loved one or on behalf of your children. And Jesus, in Matthew, at the very end of this, as he's telling his disciples why they couldn't cast it out, he's, they say, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I am here to tell you, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If God can breathe new life into his dead son and he can walk out of that grave, then there is nothing impossible for him. And you may say, Pastor, I've prayed about this a thousand times. Cool, then it's time to pray for 1,001. And we're gonna respond and just do what the word of God tells us to do. I'm gonna invite you to stand, I'm gonna pray for you. And then we'll respond. Please stand up, let me pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you more than anything because you first loved us. God, I thank you and I praise you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you came on a rescue mission for each and every one of us who would believe. And God, I pray for every man, every woman, every student in this place, Lord. I pray that they would just bring their real, authentic self to you because a real Jesus died on the real cross for a real you. God, that we would just leave the, the fake version of us somewhere else. But I, God, I thank you and I praise you. That through the blood of Jesus, you hear the prayers of your people and nothing is impossible for you. Healthy bodies are possible. Healthy marriages are possible. Prodigals coming home are possible. God, there's no thing that is possible for you. And so, Lord, we cry out to you because you have invited us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.